You are listening to Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press. Today we're joined in the studio by Calm Kant, former Deliveroo rider and organiser in the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain, Kelly Rogers, who was instrumental in organising the Picture House strike at the Ritzy, and Jamie Woodcock, UCU member and author of Working the Phones. Thank you all for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hi, I'm Jamie Woodcock. I'm a fellow at the London School of Economics and I do research on uh, work and organising at work. And I published a book with Pluto called Working the Phones about the experience of work and organising in call centres. My name is Kelly Rogers. For the past year and slightly more, I've been organising the strike within the Picturehouse cinema chain. And I'm one of the union reps from the Ritzy Picturehouse in Brixton, which was sacked in July. My name's Callum Kant. Um, I was a delivery rider uh, for nine months um, and I helped organise people with the IWGB. Um, and now I'm a researcher at the University of West London um, looking at strike movements in the UK 2008 to 2018. So when I was working with uh, Deliveroo, I think one of the interesting things was I joined after there'd been a big wildcat strike in London. Um, so in the summer of 2016, there was yeah a large strike by Deliveroo and then they were joined by Uber Eats. And so it was quite obvious there was a lot of antagonism um, and people were, workers were very angry about the situation. And then really I joined after that point and with a, with a view to trying to understand how a wildcat strike of that size had broken out with almost no organisation and trying to understand the conditions within the company that had produced that. Initially, I found that those conditions weren't replicated. So I was working down in Brighton and there wasn't any immediate drive to set up a trade union, to go on strike, any of this stuff. And um, People were aware of what had happened in London, but they didn't really see it as that significant. Um, but as time went on, conditions started to change. We had basically a problem with over-recruitment where... Um, we were paid on a pure piece rate, so £4 per delivery. Um, as more riders joined, um, the number of orders per rider dropped, meaning that we had um, an ever-increasing problem with the amount people were earning. Um, during the day, people would earn as little as, you know, you could you could theoretically earn £0 an hour. It was relatively uncommon, but you could, um, particularly if you're working at a lunch shift or whatever. Um, so people who were trying to make it work full-time began to get increasingly annoyed. And there was a, a quirk, basically, with the organisation of labour at Delivery where everyone when you're not working, you're told to go to the zone centre. And for us, that was basically a square in the middle of Brighton. Um, And as fewer and fewer people started working consistently, so you had had less work to do, you spent more time at the zone centre, which then meant that impromptu, you had mass meetings happening, basically. Um, At which point we started producing a a bulletin called the Rebel Roo, which we distributed locally and nationally. The height of the national delivery kind of conflict in about February and March, it was going to about between 6 and 10% of the workforce across the country. And that basically was was circulated and helped organise people we set up a, a union branch actually in February after things have been getting worse over the whole winter. Um, and within a couple of days, it was really remarkable. So the cyclists basically set up the union, which is the first branch of the IWGB outside of London. Uh, the mopeds heard that the cyclists had set up a union and three days later called a strike um, without going through the union, totally ignoring all the you know normal structures, ballots, any of this stuff. They're just like, oh, no, we're going to go on strike. And the cyclists then reacted, said, yeah, had 100 riders out. Um, and that started a campaign around three demands. Um, which was largely successful. So we won, we won two out of the three. The, um, there was no trade union victimisation was the first. Um, a hiring freeze was the second. And £5 a drop rather than £4 a drop was the third. And we won the no victimisation and um, hiring freeze, but we didn't win the wage increase. So, you know, it, it was semi-successful, but it was quite interesting because it, it showed us a lot of things about how conflict in, the, in platform capitalism really works. Um, It's got a very specific set of dynamics because it's got quite a different labour process to a standard job. You know, trade union law doesn't apply because you're not technically employees. Um, The labour process produces these like collectivities where you're you're all coming to the same place when you're not working, but also in other situations it can make you incredibly fragmented. 
So it's really interesting to engage with some of those specifics and really try and discover the secret to how we try and turn the tide in this new sector of the economy. I started working at Picture House in 2011, but in Cambridge, not in London. And when I transferred when I transferred to London um, in 2015, there'd already been a sort of picture house, the Ritzy, the Ritzy strikes of 2014, which had been quite high profile, um, had got a lot of sort of like press. Um, and that was kind of the strike where picture house workers for the first time sort of like raised the banner of a living wage. When I came in, you know, we were kind of in the middle of a, a two year sort of like no strike deal where the company had like promised us um, or promised the workers at the time that over the sort of subsequent two years after their deal was reached in 2014, that they would work towards implementing a living wage. We went back into negotiations. By this time, I was a rep. We went back into negotiations in July 2016, um, and they kind of turned around and told us, we have no intention of paying you the living wage, and we never did. And by this point, we kind of formulated a long list of other demands to sort of like go alongside it, because you know we'd gone back to the members and sort of gone, what are the things that sort of really matter to you? And it was sick pay, it was maternity and paternity pay. You know, later on in the dispute, it became sort of about union recognition. Um, so I kind of got involved at that point. But I think what we've been doing over the last 12, 13, 14 months um, since we've been on strike is taking sort of this dispute, which was, you know, of around 50 workers at the Ritzy and growing it um, through the company. And so, you know, we've had six cinemas out on strike. We've had members sort of like join up and down the country. And then we've had to deal with the challenge of being precarious, sort of low paid, disenfranchised workers in a company that's absolutely massive, you know, and it's not just Picture House, it's Cineworld. And how, and how do we sort of develop a, a struggle that sort of like goes beyond the capacity of sort of like quite a small number of workers and try and sort of like levy a sort of an attack on a company that's big enough for them to sort of like take notice. You know, we haven't won yet, the dispute is still ongoing and, you know, Picture House and Cineworld, our parent company, are being extremely belligerent, like rather than negotiate, they're not even negotiating with us at this point. Um, they're sacking us, so four of us got sacked, like, like I said, and um, threatening to sack everyone and sort of sending sort of like legal threats and so on. But, you know, I think the experience of organising in Picture House so far makes me extremely confident that we are going to win sort of towards the end because the company are getting increasingly desperate, an example being threatening to sack every single worker that goes on strike and then not disciplining anyone um, after they all go on strike anyway. But we are punching above our weight, you know, so we're doing something which sort of like doesn't happen very often, which is strikes growing, you know, like beyond its, its initial workplace. And, you know, we've got a support network now of people that go and do actions outside Cineworlds as far away as Glasgow, Edinburgh, you know, Brighton, Oxford, Nottingham, Leeds, like all over the country. Um, and we've even had people go to cinemas outside of the UK. You know, we've had um, people in Poland go to cinema cinema there in support of our strike. So, you know, if we continue sort of along this road, then I'm quite confident that we're going to we're going to win. But like pitch house workers are, you know, precarious workers, low paid workers, a lot of us migrant workers. Um, and I think the sort of examples that we've got in the room today we're going to be talking about uh, kind of blow apart the myth that these groups of people are impossible to organise or don't want to organise themselves. And, you know, my experience of going around the pitch house cinemas and talking to people across the bar and saying, would you like to join the union? Would you like to join the strike? And in some cases, for example, with Crouch End Picture House, the time between when I first met someone from Crouch End who came into the Ritz while I was working and when they were balloting was like four weeks. You know, it was the turnaround of... Because people are extremely keen. People do want to 
change their lives and make their lives better. I'm interested, has there been any um, attempts or discussions about recruiting workers uh, outside the Picturehouse chain uh, in the wider network of Cineworld cinemas? Yeah, so, I mean, it's something we've definitely considered and we have been trying in a kind of a limited way. So we've picked up a few members at the Cineworld in Leicester Square, um, which would be amazing if we managed to get them out on strike because that's kind of where they have big sort of red carpet sort of events and, and so on. But... And again, it sort of comes down to this question of sort of like our capacity and how do we maximise, how do we maximise the capacity? And I think the sort of community support network that has kind of emerged around the dispute is going to be key to sort of us extending it. So, you know, all the people that go and organise actions outside um, Cineworlds have been going in and talking to workers and then, you know, getting their contact details and passing them to us. Um, you know, we're kind of in a battle, I think, with Cineworld and with Picturehouse over union power at the moment I think the amount of money that they've sort of like sunk into this dispute it would have made so much more sense for them just to pay us a living wage sort of back at the beginning it's not about that for them it's about destroying the union you know they want to unequivocally beat us and that's why they're absolutely refusing to negotiate they've got this kind of sham company union the staff forum which they're offering pay rises through there they're trying to sort of like make people lose confidence in us and um, move over to the staff forum so that we're no longer a problem for them into the future because they know and they're correct that if we win then we'll continue to win into the future you know sort of unions don't win and then go away they they win more and what we need to do is continue to threaten contagion and sort of say that the longer you let this dispute run on the more cinemas we're going to get sort of involved in this dispute and Cineworld we're coming for you as well like uh, you're not immune well, I think this touches upon one of the key issues facing us at the moment, which is the question of like scalability. So in the UK, there are lots of good examples of small rank and file movements in the private sector. So, you know, uh, McDonald's, Picturehouse, Deliveroo, uh, some of the stuff UVW and the IWG have been doing in London. Like, there's a lot of very good examples of small militant activity. But the problem that is facing us is, you know, what tactics and techniques do we use to grow those struggles? So, like, if you look at the strike stats from, like, the last six months, the private sector's had this big uptick in the amount of strike activity that's going on, but the biggest sector is transport, the second biggest sector is education, the third biggest sector is manufacturing. So despite all these quite encouraging kind of strike movements in the service sector, they're still not massively statistically significant because they are examples of what could happen rather than the real thing. And so we need a strategy for massive escalation and scalability. And there are a few tactics we can use to do this. So obviously, like, community support is an important one. We need, like, a political movement capable of intervening in workplaces across the country because at the moment i mean the real shame is that with our our turn towards social movement organizing i think a lot of the left has kind of forgotten how to talk to workers about work which is a, a real problem in terms of producing class power um but also you know there's there's tactics we can use to circulate the stuff so with with deliveroo we this rebel Roo bulletin like how do we get the strike to go from london to brighton to bristol it wasn't just the fact that people were in the same conditions it was also there was a collective conversation going on where a movement intervened and people started handing out bulletins to workers in their areas and then those workers wrote in and you know we started circulating these discussions and so building specific stuff like that can be really helpful for then circulating the struggle through wider sectors of the economy. I mean, we're facing a situation where in probably, you know, the next two years, let's say, we're going to have a, I, I would say, meaningfully socialist government, right? And in that situation, there's going to be a class confrontation where the ruling class are either going to try and, like, kick the arse of the Labour government or the Labour government are going to try and backtrack on what they've, what they've said they're going to do, right? And in that situation, we need to have mass movements in capitalist production at that point and that's only going to happen if we get the scalability sorted and so we're now in a very narrow window 
where we can get that model of a generalizing rank and file movement in the private sector right, or we're going to miss quite a big historic opportunity, I think. I mean, I think one of the things sort of like impeding us kind of maximizing our power is the fact that the trade union movement is often extremely territorial and sort of like narrow in its focus. You know, sort of unions are about doing things for their members, winning things for their members, and and that's about it. And what we need is trade unionists see themselves as within as within a movement, exactly like what Callum was talking about. You know, we need to be... You can sort of see examples of if we start organising together, how we can easily sort of like help each other to win. So, for example, we've got people up and down the country sort of going into picture houses and cine worlds, sort of trying to sort of recruit members, trying to talk to customers... Next to every city world, probably five minutes down the road, there's a McDonald's because there's McDonald's everywhere, isn't there? You know, so the people that we've got doing that are Labour Party members. They're, you know, sort of local trade unionists, they're local leftists, socialists, you know, from whatever group. And, you know, they're people that would be more than willing to go to a McDonald's as well. And that's exactly what we should be trying to do in bringing these sort of like disputes, disputes together and like maximising our ability to sort of like attack our respective companies. And a lot of this has to do with the necessity of reinventing secondary picketing, right, and secondary action. Um, because obviously legal transformations that came after Thatcher kind of made that impossible. But one of the greatest strengths of the trade union movement was to be able to shut things down up and down a supply chain, right? Um, and if you could reinvent that and start bringing that back into movement, then we'd see real power. So I think the um, Institute of Employment Rights have... Um, have this proposal out that McDonnell and Corbyn have endorsed, which would make secondary action legal again, and importantly, political action legal again. But that kind of transformation can't just happen from the top down. We can't just change the law. We also need to build a movement where you're capable of saying, right, th this week we're on strike in the cinema world. What about, so Gourmet Burger Kitchen, my local cinema world has um, a Gourmet Burger Kitchen like attached to it, right? Um, if you shut down the Gourmet Burger Kitchen at the same time, you're putting much more pressure on, you're kind of enlarging the dispute. If you had McDonald's and then, I don't know, agricultural workers taking action together, you really magnify. And we know from, from past experience that stuff can grow very fast. Like there are a number of periods like the 1970s and the 1890s where the British Trade Union movement um, and more importantly, just the global workers movement has scaled incredibly quickly. We just need to find the particular levers to start making it happen again. And I mean, there were moments of this in the delivery strike so riders going to restaurants and saying, turn off the delivery app in the restaurant, your conditions are much like ours. And I guess the challenge is how do you make that not a kind of accident that's part of that action, but becomes a kind of broader plan, like seeking to, to reach out to these things. And I think in education, you can see that there's kind of a tale of two kinds of unions in education at the moment. You know, the union that I'm a member of, the UCU, hasn't won a pay rise since 2008, which was the year I started as a student uh, in university. <laughs> so my entire time at university has involved no above inflation pay rise. And that's obviously a problem for, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but it means that if you're a, a UCU member, the possibility for action at the moment doesn't look hugely exciting. There's likely to be a battle around pensions at some stage, uh, another national campaign, which, you know, who knows what the strategy of that will look like. But that's only one of the stories of trade unionism in universities at the moment. And I think it's worth talking about, when we talk about the labour movement, increasingly we're seeing two kinds of labour movements emerge. And in London, that means the existence of another union on my campus, which is UVW, who organise cleaners. And at Senate House, the existence of the IWGB, which is also organising cleaners. And they use very different tactics. So at LSE using demonstrations, using direct action of various kinds, has meant that these workers are now being brought back in-house, something that the existing trade union movement has not been able to effectively do, to raise these kind of political demands about bringing all of the workers inside the same organisation with the same employer. 
And I think what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks and the build up to the, the demonstration on the 21st at Senate House, 21st of November, is I think the possibility of another victory of, of in-house campaigns. Now, the problem is at present, the kind of territorial nature of the mainstream trade union movement means that officially the resources of the labor movement are not being put behind this. And I think it's a big challenge for us to think through how the best traditions of the mainstream trade union movement can be brought into contact with the tactics and the techniques of these newer small unions. We need forms of industrial organisation where you can put the cleaners and the academics on the same campus in the same union, right? So a major problem with British trade unionism was in the in the period of decline that we've just endured and are in some ways still enduring. There was this constant pressure towards mergers where you just end up with, you know, the trade union movement going from 13 million to 6 million, but a massive increase in the size of the biggest unions, right? Where now you just have huge general workers union that have swallowed up everything. So, you know, Unite came out of Amicus, which was itself already a merger of four unions merging with another general union. So you get specific industrial unions merging, 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 merging. And over the course of five or six of these mergers, you just get a bloated organisation with no particular industrial specificity. And you look at what unions have remained effective. There have been unions like the RMT, which for all of its, you know, it's, it's got a lot of specificity around it. It's got workplace leverage in some ways, but it's also just an industrial union. And a reorganisation along industrial lines looks to me to be pretty essential because I don't understand how you're meant to, at a university, get a pay rise for academics if the only thing you shut down is the seminars, right? If you can't shut down the library, if you can't shut down, you know, the actual infrastructure of the university, you're never going to win. And operating across multiple unions to do that is going to be a real pain. But if you just have one, it'd be a much more simple problem. I mean, another example is, uh, I think something that's been quite good is the merger between the NUT and the ATL and into the NEE, you know, because that's sort of, that's exactly it, sort of bringing in people and allowing different people in the same workplace and the same schools to you know, to organise organize together. And I think that was a very positive step. A very bad example of a merger, I think, is actually from my own union, like Bechtel merging with Prospect. Not an industrial decision. Like, you know, we've, we've merged a union with highly paid sort of like civil servants, you know, scientists, some communication workers. You know, there's very little that we've, they've got in common with sort of like the entertainment industry, um, even less in common with the lowest paid people in the entertainment industry, like in Picture House. And it was, we merged simply for the purposes of, dealing with a financial issue and I think that was a that was a very very bad decision and you know we need to do something very quickly to sort of transform ideas about what is the role of sort of like the trade of trade unions because for me its primary purpose should be to raise the aspirations of the class and that should involve working with other unions working with workers across industries working with social movements and working with everyone that you can to build sort of like working class power. Well, the actual strategies that have been tried for renewal, you talk about, you know, how trade unions have behaved in decline. They've tried mergers, which you talked about. They've also tried partnership where they actually actively make friends with the bosses and say, oh, isn't it going to be better for all of us if we kind of work together? Trade unions used to be built on the understanding that bosses and workers had different interests. But in the mid-90s, everyone forgot this. Uh, and then finally, service operation, right? Like we've bought a Butlins. You can go for, for cheaper than... No one wants to go to Butlins in the first place, right? Like, as a fundamental strategy that these are... These are bizarre because what built the trade union movement, what's being successful outside the trade union movement, it's organising, right? It's a very simple organising from the bottom up approach. And that's, you know, the communication workers union, the bakers, food and allied workers union, have they had successes in the Royal Mail and McDonald's? It's through basic organising, right? There's so many examples we can point to. And yet we haven't scaled that up and really applied it as a single strategy for trade union renewal. It seems to me to be basically 
up to us now. If the trade unions aren't going to do it, we need to start doing it as a wider movement and force them into it by showing them that the rank and file can get organised, take action and win. And eventually, if you start doing that effectively enough, the working class isn't going to continue. I mean, very few people, especially young people, are in trade unions. They don't look to the trade union membership for any leadership. But if they did, they're going to be convinced that's the wrong thing. And suddenly they're going to start looking at actual other workers for leadership on how you win at work. And in that situation, we will have some actual power. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a big challenge, isn't it? If you try to, and I know it's not a nice thing to do, but to put yourselves in the the shoes of a trade union leader, <laughs> you can kind of see why they do this. You know, in, in my own union in the UCU, you can understand why they care more about the members who pay a large amount of subs who are coming towards the end of retirement and don't particularly care about young or early career staff who are going to pay £5 a month. So you can kind of see why in a short-term way what's the point of investing all of those resources in something that's quite risky. But you also see things like, you know, we had a recruitment campaign a couple of years ago where the prize for recruiting people was a hamper for John Lewis, which is like a famously anti-trade union company. So you get these moments where you kind of think, is this just trolling at this stage? Like, is this really how we see the, the union movement developing? But then we also see really exciting things happening. So like the fractionals campaign at SOAS, a group of young workers able to organise a campaign to win a number of victories. And I think the key is thinking, how can we take those arguments back into the union with other people? Because ultimately, you know, if we look at the, the work that the IWGB has done, which is clearly fantastic, there's a problem of scaling it. You know, how do you move outside of London? Or how do you take on, you know, if the in-house campaign takes off, how many universities are there in London? 20, 25, maybe more. That's a huge number of workplaces to try and organise in. And so we need to think about ways that these things can be scaled uh, and think about the kind of arguments that we need to be putting, not only in our workplaces, but also not to let these people off the hook. You know, these large trade unions, as you say, were meant to be there to raise aspirations, not to to collect a nice wage and, and, and sell interesting services or whatever they claim. I was interested, um, has the recent rise in the London living wage affected your campaign at the Ritzy at all? I quite like the living wage as a demand. I think it's limited um, but in the sense that we're asking to be paid what the poverty line is, you know. So it is limited. But I, I also quite like the living wage demands because it kind of says to people that it doesn't matter who you are, where you work, how skilled you are, how lazy you are or hardworking you are, everyone deserves to be paid enough to live on. Um, and I think that's sadly in today's world actually quite a radical notion. So I quite like the living wage demand for that reason. It going up, um, how that's going to affect sort of like the company um, and our dispute, it's, it's unclear. Like uh, you could sort of see it as a longer stick to beat the company with. Um, it definitely will help us recruit people and talk to people because, you know, having this sort of like figure which demonstrates people the degree of poverty that they live in is useful. But what is going to win this dispute isn't sort of the company feeling guilty about the gap getting too big. How much money would Picture House actually lose if they were to increase the wage rate from what it is now to meet the new London living wage of £10.20? Like how much money would they lose in terms of their profits? <laughs> I actually haven't done the calculations since it's gone up because that was only a couple of days ago, wasn't it? Um, what we worked out is we think for them to pay the living wage for everyone in Picture House, it would cost them somewhere around a million 
a million and a half on top of the current wages budget. I mean, they make almost £100 million in post-tax profit a year. So, And that's actually, that's going up rapidly. In three years, their post-tax profit has trebled from 30-something million to almost £100 million. You know, this company is extremely wealthy. Um, Do I see a figure that their CEO as well is earning the equivalent of 575 an hour as well? So our um, CEO last year made two and a half million pounds in pay and bonuses. So, you know, if we take the figure of one to one and a half million pounds for Pitch House, he could pay everyone in Pitch House the money to put them up to a living wage and still take home a million pounds wow. a year. Uh, so, yeah, the idea that this company can't afford to pay the living wage, which is what they say to us in negotiations and what they say sometimes in public is so ludicrous it's kind of like astonishing that you can get away with it what they said what they said is imagine a world in which we don't pay you for breaks and then imagine a world in which you work this amount of hours every week and you sort of do an average of the amount of money you take home and sort of like apply those things we actually we don't we actually do pay you a living wage i mean that's no longer the case because the living wage has gone up but at the time it's like so we do pay you a living wage and we were like well you're asking us to imagine things which aren't true so so you don't I think what's interesting about it is they, the reason why they were saying this is because they wanted to use the law to stop us going on strike. So they basically said, your strike ballot is invalid because you're asking for the living wage and we already pay you it. So therefore, um, anyone that goes on strike will be striking illegally and will likely be sacked. Everyone that operates within the trade union movement knows um, the law isn't on our side. And the amount of time and anxiety and stress that sort of like Bechtu invests in responding to these lawyers' letters um, from um, Pitch House's lawyers, because Pitch House is extremely litigious, and why is it extremely litigious? Is because they know that they're likely to win. We're going to tribunal over our, over our dismissals. Anyone can see that it's blatantly a case of trade union victimization, but who knows whether we're going to win um, win in court because people often don't, especially sort of like relatively precarious workers on crap contracts. And we do need to change the law. I think we've, you know, we've sort of mentioned this and we need to fight very hard and that's kind of what we need to be pushing the Labour Party to do as well. Um, you know, a Corbyn-led Labour Party should be repealing sort of like anti-union legislation and making that one of its priorities. Well, I think the thing that stands out to me was that if Deliveroo, if our movement, we'd had to apply, you know, trade union law, we would never have got off the ground. We wouldn't have had a hope in hell of getting off the ground. You know, the real thing that set us free was actually we were made so precarious that we were no longer even technically employed, which got rid of sick pay, got rid of holiday pay, got rid of all statutory rights. But actually, at the same time, it got rid of the laws that they had paid so much money, you know, capitals, but so much effort into building this specific set of laws. You know, the, the 2015, well, 2016 trade union bill in the end, right? That was specifically designed by right-wing think tanks to hamstring the trade union movement. They've put huge amounts of money into developing this body of law. And as soon as it doesn't apply, you can have power, right? As soon as it didn't apply, a group of workers who were totally precarious, who were scattered all over the country, who had no real workplace leverage, who were incredibly disorganised from all sorts of backgrounds, could immediately apply quite a large amount of power. I mean, when we went on strike in Brighton, we were cutting order volume for the evening in half, and Deliveroo was having to refund, because they have a policy of refunding 110%, they were having to refund thousands and thousands of pounds of food because basically if you made an order it was going to turn up in four hours time right so immediately you know we could start to put the pressure on and that's what you have in a place like that without trade union law straight away you're making gains right so you can see the impacts of legality it's obviously not the only thing but if a Corbyn-led Labour Party doesn't, you know, immediately get rid of the vast majority of trade union law in this country then there's absolutely no sense to it you know that has to be the base for this stuff. 
But I think we also have to remember that the history of trade unionism has not been one of respecting trade union laws. Mm. You know, all of the protections that we have in law for striking are things that were fought through struggle. They weren't things that would, suddenly a court said, no, it would be great if you, you know, could go away and, uh, and be allowed to do this. And I think part of the problem is it's a divorcing of the bureaucracy from the experience of work. Of course, trade union leaders don't want to risk the sequestering of funds or legal action. And so they're not prepared to push these things. Whereas if we look at actual workplaces, you know, why should you have to respect balloting laws? You know, if you have the majority of people and you want to go on strike, you should be able to do that. And I think we need to be careful in saying we wait until the laws get changed, because there are examples where unofficial action or, or secondary picketing are things we should be trying to do now. Um, there was 35 workers in Hull. Um, the other day, 35 workers on a biomass site had two workers victimised. And so when they went into work in the morning, they cabined up, which means they basically stayed in their cabins. Um, and from the start of the workday, by 10.30, the company had cracked and rehired the two workers, right? So you see the immediate power of this. And construction workers still use wildcat action like frequently and highly effectively. So if we can learn from that and spread that. I mean, the major problem here is that we have such a fragmented view of actually what's going on in this country in terms of work, right? We have very limited understandings of what contemporary work looks like. All the statistics we have are collected mainly by companies or by the government, right? And, you know, capital and the state are not the best researchers of labour movements. Um, and we just, we're not entirely sure what's going on. So I think we could start to really address this in a much more concrete way if we had a granular understanding of, you know, what is the composition of the working class at this point in time? Because we just don't know. But I think it also means going beyond, I think the living wage has been absolutely fantastic and it's it's remarkable how often you hear it as the first demand in a campaign. But I think the problem is, and you know, particularly in the mainstream unions, is saying that the two things we take action on are pay and pensions. Now, those things are clearly very, very important and obviously not everybody has access to a pension. But it's also about thinking through what are the other things you can fight over at work, the kind of non-economic demands, things around control. Because you go to a union meeting in a university, no one even thinks you can contest the new systems of metrics or you know, the new administrative things that you have to do. Is I feel like we've lost so much of that history of struggle that you can fight over whether your boss can tell you to do that or not, or whether you can be timed at work. And you could imagine those kind of demands setting a whole series of struggles off. You know, that feeling of being under pressure by the boss and having no control over your own work in, in, in all manner of ways would be a huge motivator. But it's just not it's not talked about as the kind of things that we can organise around. I think, our, I think our sort of like disputes are depoliticised in lots of different ways as well. Like another example that I can give from my own experience, although I want to say that like by no way is back to unusual in the way sort of like it operates. Um, and I wouldn't want to give that impression. But for International Women's Day, uh, we wanted to go on strike um, and we kind of wanted, you know, to sort of make the point that yes we're going on strike and we're attacking the company today but we also we're making the point that low-paid precarious work um are things which predominantly affect women and if the demands that we were making were implemented not just in picture house but across sort of like the low-paid precarious service sector then it'd be predominantly women that would benefit and you know this came from the membership this is what people wanted to do and we were told that we don't really get that that that's not going to win against picture house so no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do that. And permission to go on strike that time wasn't 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 granted. That's the only time they've ever cancelled one of our strikes. And that was an example of yeah them depoliticising our strikes and us trying to sort of like create a political narrative, which is exactly what we should be doing. Because like you say, sort of by creating these political narratives, we're drawing people in, aren't we? We're sort of like we're talking to people about how what we're doing is relevant to them and how 
you know, it's not just about cinema workers, it's not just about bar workers, it's not just about cyclists, it's about, you know, this is something which applies to people across the working class. But I also think this can be extended to think about the kind of tactics we can use when we do struggle. So again, to use universities, if I go on strike, nobody notices. You know, if I do my one day's teaching a week, that's kind of the only thing that, that people will notice. And a couple of years ago, we talked about doing an email boycott. Many of us, this is how we communicate with our boss nowadays. And the union sent us an email back, of course, because that's how they communicate with us, saying, <laughs> you can't do this because it would be too effective. <laughs> and you have this moment of thinking, well, maybe taking a day off work and then doing all the work that you're meant to have done when you were in on another day isn't the most effective form of struggle. And so I think that kind of return to work of thinking, what is it you do in a cinema? What is it you do at Deliveroo, in a university, a school or wherever it is? And thinking about where our power lies in each of those moments means that we can try and turn those into demands which, you know, are more exciting than a long campaign over pensions or something like that. And just on the issue of control as well, I think there's something quite interesting in terms of um, a delivery, obviously, I met a boss once when I worked for Deliveroo and they weren't even really a boss. They were someone paid, you know, £8 an hour to hand out bags, right? Um, I met them once and then I worked for nine months, you know, part-time for them, right? If you work for nine months and don't see a boss, that's because all the management is being automated, right? So my entire management was on my smartphone. It was algorithmic, right? So I was algorithmically managed the whole time. Now, for issues of control, that's really like quite a profound change. So you look at the beginnings of um, like bourgeois management theory, they start with the question of who controls the labor process, right? So like Taylor begins by saying we need managers to control the labor process. At the moment, workers control it, we need to take control when we can do that, we can force them to work harder, stop them skiving off, essentially, right? With algorithmic management, you have a real problem where across the economy, there now exists technology that can totally remove our control in a way that makes it actually quite difficult to see how you can replace it. And it doesn't just happen in the gig economy. You know, I've got friends who work nights at Sainsbury's, right? And they have to do all their work through a little uh, iPad style thing, right? And that, that governs all their work. I know there are cleaners who have to register the rate at which they clean rooms on iPads, right? This kind of management is intensely disempowering, intensely alienating in some ways. I mean, you're liberated from like the interpersonal thing of like, I really hate my boss because they're a prick, but you aren't liberated from having a boss who has GPS tracking. And even, you know, the Deliver app asks for permissions on your microphone, right? So how do you know if you're having, they can check whether you're in work or not in work, your location, your microphone. If you have a union meeting, you have 30 dots in the same place at 7pm on a, on a Friday night or something, and they turn on the microphones, that is now entirely possible and moreover legal. Right? It's in the app permissions. We have nothing to control that. So in order to kind of overcome this, we obviously need a labour movement. There's no way you can just litigate that out of existence. That needs to be changed through class power. But there's another great advantage in this, which is there is no possibility of mediation there, right? A boss can't make little concessions. An algorithm can't make little concessions without a coder doing a huge amount of work, right? So it forces a certain kind of militancy in its own way. So I don't think we should just look at this as disempowering. Like a lot of the technological changes we're seeing at the moment are deeply, you know, unsettling in some ways. But simultaneously, the delivery strike couldn't have been sorted with anything less than a strike, right? You can't just go talk to a boss because they'll send someone down the train and they'll chat to you and it'll be clear they have no idea what's going on. Rather than whereas, you know, Kelly, you'll have people who you work with every single day who are trying to break your strike. Whereas with us, that layer of people no longer exists. And when they got rid of a certain kind of management, they got rid of a certain kind of compromise. And so in that, there's a real sense of potential new power. And, you know, I think we really saw that in the, the delivery strikes in London. You saw these senior managers come down to talk to crowds of drivers who they'd clearly only ever seen as dots on a map before. 
And there's a fantastic video where you can just see this complete inability to understand how they could talk to the people that, that work for them. So, you know, they were saying, oh, you're not that badly paid, you know, you'd actually be better off and so on. And the crowd kind of erupted in anger because they've never had that interface, mm-hmm. as, as Callum says. And I think there's a risk with a lot of this new technology that we say, you know, capital has kind of perfected its practices. You know, this is a this is going to crush us under its own kind of technical composition. Whereas in reality, these things can be turned around quite easily. You know, how do you manage a strike at delivery when you don't have enough managers? There's not the people to go out and do that classic managerial job. That's also the thing that when Fordism, so when like, you know, the proper systems of mass production were invented, the trade union movement was convinced that was the end of trade unionism, right? They all went, look, all our skilled artisan workers are going to be absolutely ruined by this. There's no way we can have power. Now, when you think of the car industry, one of the most militant industries across the world that won repeatedly because they found a form of action that fitted that composition, right? They found the sit-down strike. And with the sit-down strike, suddenly you had, you know, huge trade union growth, huge political power. You look only at the American example. I mean, the, the period of the sit-down strikes in America, you see a very disorganised working class going to one that can force things like the New Deal, right? And that kind of total political revolution can come from discovering a form of action which fits the technical composition. I I completely agree with that. And I think it's really important to keep looking back to all these moments where people have said, work's completely changed, it's over and so on. There's one factor that's a little bit different today is in the 30s you had, you know, for better or for worse, a large communist party that was very well organised, that was very well rooted in the trade union movement and was able to argue to put those resources into the car factories and fight and organise. Today, we don't have a left that it has that kind of influence. And this is the kind of the, one of the problems with Corbynism is it has a political orientation, which, you know, it would be objectively better to have a Corbyn government. But there isn't that social movement that's also saying we go out and vote Labour but we get our trade union to organise delivery drivers. Like a wave of struggle will happen whatever takes place. You know, we've seen that with delivery and and now with Uber. The question is, how can it be organised? And it's that divergence of the two trade union movements that's kind of concerning at the moment, is how do you pull the older one into actually doing stuff, I think is a, a big question that doesn't have an answer. I think it's true. Like, there are lots of local organisations within Labour Party that should, you know, be doing this basic work. And at the moment, we've got, I think, both a generational lack of skills. So, like, me and Kelly came up in the student movement at the same time. We knew how to organise people who already agree with us, right? We knew very well how to get, you know, 50 people into a room, lock the doors, and have a battle between 50 people and the entire university management. But we had no idea how to organise the majority of people on campus around, you know, what were quite abstract, highly political, and difficult to make concrete goals, right? At times when there was huge momentum, that was possible but that kind of mobilizing is very different to the organizing you need to do in the trade union movement in some ways i mean obviously there are shared skills and you learn one from the other but there are still specific things you need to learn or to do trade union organizing that should have been passed on by the movement haven't been and now need to be reinvented but if we had effective local organization to make you know corbynism from below a bit of a reality that would require you know teaching people this is how you go into a workplace and actually just doing it through practice. We've got momentum groups or local labour groups everywhere, right? Why are they not doing this basic work? You can't just talk to people at elections. It has to be, you've got to create social power. The Corbyn moment is really exciting and we're seeing a shift in political ideas to the left, but actually this huge surge of membership aren't going to their Labour Party meetings. A small 
percentage of them might be going to their momentum meetings or Labour Party meetings, but a very small percentage of them. These people, they turn out on election days and, and vote. Um, and momentum is very is a very effective machine at sort of like getting people out to vote for Corbyn. Um, but beyond that, what is it doing? And, you know, like, I think that's another sort of like serious problem which we need to address as quickly as quickly as possible. I think Callum was talking about this earlier because, you know, we are sort of like hopefully on the eve of, of an exciting sort of like political period, but we're going to lose it unless we have um, a Labour movement that's that's capable of not just like supporting a Corbyn government, but driving it, improving it, making, making it better, putting demands on the Corbyn government, such as you have to make freedom of movement your priority. You know, this is central to sort of like the needs of the working class in this country. For me, what was most exciting about Corbyn recently was when he said on a platform, everyone should join a trade union. You know, that's something that should be made real. I think what we have to argue is you should join a trade union that fights because it's not good enough just to join a trade union. And it means recovering those traditions. Going to a trade union meeting should be fun. Like it should be exciting. You should feel collective power there. It shouldn't have to be a two hour meeting with a very strict agenda talking about things that you know don't particularly affect you it should be a place to come plan and take action and i think that you know that responsibility is on all of us who are involved in different movements is to 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 re to reinvent those ideas uh, and link them up to you know this doesn't just help you fight at work but this is part of a broader struggle I've I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently sort of like how do you get people involved in in your union how do you sort of like give the movement sort of like the life that it needs and the answer I think is take action over everything and as much as you possibly can why have we managed to recruit hundreds of people to the pitch house to Bexley in pitch house it's not because Bexley is this really exciting thing you know it's because there's a strike on and that, that makes it exciting because we've actually got the real possibility of winning and this again it comes down to raising the aspirations of the people around you and saying we deserve the world as I've said and you know sort of like const- continually sort of like pushing everyone around us to sort of like believe that and I think that's kind of the way we're going to sort of revive the union movement we want to see strikes we want to see the number of sort of days working days lost to strike action balloon and that's only going to happen if we like make it happen there's one potentially I think interesting experiment being done at the moment um, with the construction of tenants or renters unions right um so there's a few organizations but I think the one the one I know most about is Acorn um and essentially they've got a branch in Bristol which is quite large you know it'd it'd probably be as big as the size of you know Unite in Bristol or whatever right it's quite a large branch and they have people dealing with housing who you know they'll be approached in the street and said, hey there, have you heard about renters union? You're paying too much rent. People say, oh, well, I've got mould, it's giving me asthma. You know, I've been talking to people about housing in Brighton. The stories you hear are horrific. You know, there's um, the chairman of my local football club is a landlord. And in the local pub by the football ground, you'll go in there and there'll be people saying, you know, I met a guy, he had a seven-year-old daughter. His heating wasn't fixed for a month over last winter. And he got to minus seven degrees with his daughter in a flat. Right. And they had one of the the plug in electric fan things that cost so much electricity. And she learned that she had to start lying about whether she was cold or not because daddy couldn't afford to put the heating on. Right. These are conditions people live in in 21st century Britain. That would Engels putting that in, you know, the condition of the working class would have sounded totally normal. Right. But when you organize people around these conditions, they feel, you know, people feel more intimately a right to have a roof over their heads and heating than they do necessarily work because the, the ideology of Thatcherism was so premised around the idea of, you know, you don't have a right to decent work. So it can be quite easy when you're talking to people about housing and you say, 
you know, maybe you solve that problem of a repair that they haven't had done. You know, they haven't had their door fixed or whatever, right? You get that repair done. You get trust. You show that you're active. You show that you're capable of doing things. You show that collective power is possible. People quite often start coming and talking to you about work. And you say, you know, I had this real problem with my heating. You sorted that. What about the problem with my boss? And so there's now potentially a new avenue. These precarious workers in disintegrated workplaces, what do they all have in common? They're all renters, right? Because they're the same class, right? You don't rent in one class position and work in another. And so I think the idea of a tenants union isn't new, right? You know, Glasgow 1918 won rent controls for 80 years or whatever, right? But we need to start thinking about how we get to people in disintegrated workplaces. And potentially that's a really good one. And actually it allows you to go around a lot of, you know, the, the old problems of the trade union movement. I mean, I think with all these things, you know, whether it's a renter's union or thinking about dealing with an existing mainstream trade union or with a new or alternative one, the starting point is what's actually happening with people. You know, what's actually happening with people in dilapidated housing or what's actually happening with low paid workers in a workplace and it's those networks that are the key to transforming these conditions. Whether they then choose to use a mainstream union as a tool to support their struggle or they form a new one, it's those fighting over the microwave at work or over you know, whether the heating doesn't work. It's those moments that are the embryo of the new forms of organisation and struggle. And I think if we forget about that, we can get too caught up in the debates about trade union bureaucracy or structure. And I think we need to kind of go back a step because if we're going to rebuild things, we have to rebuild it from the experience of work and the perspective of workers, not from a kind of sadness that the glory days of trade unionism have gone um, because there's real potential there and that's how, that's how we're going to change the world. So if people in London are interested in getting involved in the IWGB campaign, uh, the University of London Senate House building uh, which is by Russell Square, is having a demonstration on the 21st of November, which starts at six o'clock. And this is to demonstrate outside uh, Foundation Day where they're celebrating Senate House. But of course, Senate House have chosen not to celebrate the workers who actually run the building. Uh, and so the campaign is about bringing them back in-house, bringing them back on the terms and conditions that they actually agreed to previously. If people want to get involved in the Picture House campaign, there are lots of things that you can do. We're going to have a number of strikes coming up. We don't have dates. We don't have dates yet, um, but you can follow us on social media. There's like Ritzy Living Wage, Hackney Picture House Living Wage on Facebook. But we've been talking sort of like throughout the podcast about sort of different sort of actions that have been taking place in community support networks. We need people to go into Cineworlds, going into Picture Houses. We're also hopefully organising an international day of action where we're going to get people to go to Cinema City, which is the European branch of Cineworld, Cinema Cities um, around Europe. So please do get in touch. You can get in touch with the campaign through ritzylivingwage at gmail.com. You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation, the podcast from Pluto Press. We'd like to thank our guests, Callum Kant, Kelly Rogers and Jamie Woodcock. For more information about the struggles discussed in today's episode, go to www.plutobooks.com. 